Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the takeout ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Let me just say this. I've been here before, but never like this. Where am I? I'm at a place called The Tune-In. We've never brought the show here before. We'll probably come back. This is a favorite sort of uh, burger joint in D.C. You might call it fairly a dive bar. I wouldn't, but some might. I spent a lot of time here in the early 90s when I was first launching my career in journalism in Washington. So I've been here many times, just haven't brought the show here before. So what are we talking about this week? Well, if you're a fan of this show, and I know you are, you know the name Luke Russert. You know the name Tim Russert. Neither need any amplification and superlatives to one apply to the other. Tim Russert is a legend. Luke Russert is a lesser legend, but still a legend (laughs) nevertheless. And Luke has written a book. We'll put the graphic up. Look for me there. The subtitle, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. Luke Russert, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. I think I saw your ghost running around there in the back there, Major. <laughs> I have many ghosts that run the around The 90s at the tune-in. Washington, exactly. D.C. What Washington, a time. What, what a, a time. time. It was a time. Uh, folks, this is a book about Luke's travels after quitting the TV business. Almost three years, 60 countries. It reads like a travelogue, most of it. But I'm going to go back to front because the latter part of the book is much grittier and much more honest than the front part of the book. We'll ask Luke why that is, but I want to read something to you just so people get a feel for what you were struggling with while you were on this journey. I want to read to you from page 205. I can't compare. I make no impact. I do no good. I can't come close to him. Can't even bring myself to try. Pathetic. Why'd you write that? 
So I think one of the things you struggle with um, in the grieving process, Mm -hmm. but especially when you've lost somebody that is seemingly larger than life, that is first and foremost your dad and your best friend, but there's an element of his public-facing forward self, was this idea of inadequacy. And it can manifest itself in so many different ways, which is, oh, my father did so much more with so much less than I did. I'm inadequate. My father at this age did so much more. I'm inadequate. My mother had done so much more at this age. I'm inadequate. Why can't I figure things out? Why can't I put things together? I've been given all this privilege, all this opportunity, but I'm seemingly letting everything slip through the grasp of my hand. And you're referencing a chapter that I talk about called Boxes. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially towards the end, uh, a middle part of 2018. And it follows a period where I had had a difficult conversation with my mother, where she basically asked me, you know, you've been out of media over a year and a half. What are you doing with your life? You need to figure this out. It was all great to have your eat, pray, love moment, but, mm-hmm. you know, follow it up, do something. And so and that I, did not land all that well. It didn't. I was a little upset about it. You're pissed I think off. I was, as I think folks, uh, as as sons that have domineering mothers can relate to. But what I did is I went up to the attic, and there were these boxes, mm-hmm. and they had sat there for ten years, and I had never actually gone through them because going through them meant two things: is one, I would actually have to admit Dad was completely gone because mm-hmm. I was processing the death, but secondly. I was uncomfortable knowing what would pop out. And sure enough, as I go through this long, tedious process, every time I see letters he wrote, I see his handwriting, I see little notes in the margins, I find my old report cards, and he had written in there, good job, buddy. But then I see this box about his political career. So before he was ever with NBC Mm -hmm. News, he was a staffer right down the hill, uh, right down the street on the hill uh, for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, chief of staff. And then he worked for Governor Cuomo in, in New York. And in that box, there's how Tim Russert led Moynihan's reelection in 1982. Moynihan won by a million votes. It's the largest landslide ever. He did that at age 32. Right. He led that landslide. Then he goes and works for Cuomo for a few years, ends up becoming a senior VP at NBC at 34 years old. So I'm at the same age reading this, unemployed, sort of trying to figure out my own way. And I look at, my God, what status he had arisen to at such a young age and instantly begin to compare myself, which is something I never tried to do when I was actually working in media because I knew that would be a fallacy. You can't compare yourself to a Hall of Famer when you're starting out. That is silly. And when I did that, I really felt the weight of the inadequacy. And then that weight, I think, opened up a Pandora's box of every insecurity that I had had over the last few years just sort of came out in that moment. I mentioned uh, that the book gets grittier the longer you are in it. And I want to read something that uh, reads to me uh, as very truthful and also very gritty. This is from page 229. This is near the end of all of your travels. Not the absolute end, but near the end. I think you recognize this. God, I look like (laughs) I don't even look like me anymore. This isn't what this journey was supposed to be about. This is a pathetic and shameful bastardization. This isn't self-growth, and it's far, far away from self-care. What the hell is this? So it feels like you were at this point where you thought there would be something larger, something more revealed to you, and you were still, after all this time, not only looking worse, feeling worse, 
but still searching. So it's remarkable. You're looking for that aha moment, but the aha moment never fully shows itself. And so you're led to believe it's just around the corner. It's going to happen next. If I can just wait, it'll, it'll, it'll be there. And the very thing that I had sought out, this very thing that was saving me when I had left media and this, this freedom, this freedom that allowed me to become comfortable in uncertainty, this freedom that allowed me to get to know myself, to understand who I was independent of my parents in my hometown, this freedom that it allowed me to experience all these different cultures and get to know the ways of the world is now kind of strangling me. This freedom that is supposed to be the good thing ends up becoming a bad thing because I had become untethered. So what you're referencing is after a difficult evening in Abilene, Texas, Mm -hmm. where I had recently um, gone to Los Angeles, my mother had won all these Emmy Awards because there was a show made out of a book she wrote. The show was called The Assassination of Gianni Versace, American Crime Story. And we had gone to Tucson to visit some friends. And I just decided for the hell of it, you know, I'm going to drive to Marfa, Texas and see what the world finds. And I go through a lot of difficult moments on that journey. This woman who I've been seeing just basically says, get out. You're done. You're so untethered. You're so out there. I don't have time for you anymore. And I start to process all these things regarding the journey, which is, was this really worth it? What have I learned here? And that's the bottoming out, which which you wrote, which is after a night of... You know, drinking and overeating and just just gorging. And when I wrote those, when when I feel felt those emotions, I realized I had to make a switch. And that's actually when I went back and started to read the journals. And there were journals that I had kept throughout the entire traveling process. And it was in those journals and studying them that I realized, okay, I'm able to pinpoint where I was during certain moments of this journey. But there's also something in here, which I'm going to learn through reading these and I'm going to learn through writing them out. And what I ultimately come to figure out is that I was doing two things. And I was looking for something, which was being my own person and the acceptance of that from my father. Is it okay, Dad? Can I ask permission to be my, myself? And secondly, I was trying to outrun something. And that was grief. And actually sitting in those feelings, not storing and ignoring them and processing them. And that is something that I had run away from for about 10 years. Because if I ever did that, he was truly gone and made me really uncomfortable. Because then there was a lot of questions about, who are you? Before you got to this space of wasting, yeah, did you know there was a book? No. No. Um, my mom had always said to me, you have to do something with this journey. And I had taken all these photographs and I had a pretty good Instagram going. And so in my own mind, I said, well, if worst comes to worst, I guess I could do like a travel blog, coffee table book or something or self-publish, sell it on Etsy. I don't know. I'm going to stop you with that thought there. The travel blog, coffee table book. It's much deeper what you rendered. Much, much deeper. We're going to get into that more in segment two of The Takeout. We're at the tune-in. Lunch has arrived. Luke Rusteter is our special guest. Back in a second. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, And it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. 
That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome back to The Takeout. We are coming to you from the TuneIn, a place we have never been before, but we may return to again if they're willing and able. Certainly the food is good enough. Luke Russett is our special guest. So you didn't write a coffee table book. You didn't do an Instagram light blog. But still, I feel like you held back a little bit. Did you? Ooh, it's a good question. It's like one of those Barbara Walters questions. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, so when you write a memoir, it's personal. And the uh, director... Uh, the guy who won the Academy Award, the Korean gentleman for uh, that film a few years ago, Mr. Moon, he said something that the most personal is the most creative. Mm-hmm. And I tend to agree with that. But I think you have a balancing act. And what I mean by that is that you want to avoid the pitfall of this navel-gazing, sort of just looking inward all the time and having this stream of consciousness that a lot of people look at as like, oh my gosh, man, you know, go, go play some Bob Seger and, and smoke a joint out in the, in, the, in the hills or something, right? Get over and, yourself. Yeah, get over yourself. Who cares? Then the other component of it is, oh, if you want to air all the dirty laundry that's ever happened in your life, like... Is that something that you feel is actually, in fact, honest, or is it just sort of your memory on? of it? Yeah, your memory of it, and your glossed so up recounting. For me, of I did it. a sort of, I think, middle middle route there, which was uh, I sort of spoke my piece, admitted uh, with real honesty difficulty in my relationship with my mother, mm-hmm. um, my own failings, um, but. You know, I think we all hold back in some capacity, but I put a pretty honest representation of who I am out there, as much as I was comfortable with at the time. I mean, I think I look back at you know Katie Kirk's book, and you look at other books where they're sort of written towards further along on the back nine. Yep. You know, would I ever say that coming back down the line, I'd be saying, hey, you know, I'm going to get it all off my chest. But no, I mean, I, I still have, I, there's no like dark thing there. I some tons of admiration for NBC and admiration for the media world in general. Are you better off without TV in your life? Yeah, I think so. Because one of the grinds of television is there is an element of you that has to stay in character. Um, which is not easy. And my father was great at very much being the same person who he was on television off camera uh, and understood that, understand the value out of that. And I could do the same thing, but it would weigh on me in ways that I didn't know. And I would have conversations with people where they would say, well, who is the real you? And sometimes I wasn't aware of that because the two 
conflict with each other so much. And I would always try and hang out with high school friends and do things that remove me sort of from the bubble of, of Washington. So I don't miss the TV world that much. Uh, there are moments where I wish I could be involved. For example, you know, we're a few blocks away. Uh, January 6th is a story I regret I missed out on mm-hmm. because I would have been in that building. I know the building like the back of my hand. Mm-hmm. I just walked by it. I actually have not been inside in um, six years now, but I can almost seven years now, but I can tell you, you could drop me off anywhere in that complex and I could get from point A to point B blindfolded. Where uh, were you on January 6th? I was at home in, in Washington watching on, on TV and I had, um, I, I felt guilt. I felt guilt not being there because I thought that could have been of service just in terms of the coverage. And I was angry, and it was very upsetting to see that, because that's a building that, to me... It's the most beautiful building in America. It's the most beautiful building in America. It's a personification of American values and American um, decency and American democracy. Yeah, and it's a sort of civility. And, of course, there's a long family history there. My mom had interned on the Hill when she was younger. My dad worked there, so... It was always a sort of uh, a, a stately sort of home in my heart, in my head. So it, it, there was a sense of feeling violated. Speaking of your mom, as you just did, yes, the subtitle is Grieving My Father, but I would also say part of this book is Discovering Your Mother. Yeah. I think what's interesting is at some point we start to understand, understand who our parents are as mortals, and aside from the role of mom or the role of dad. And it was through this journey that I finally got to see who my mom was and what her origin story was. And, you know, my entire life she'd encouraged me to travel. But I had never took her... What was the caricature you had of your mom? Domineering. Um, someone who had an incredible value system, but it was like a fiery Jesuit priest. and Bad cop. Yeah bad cop compared to my dad's good cop but a sort of expect when i bring up the jesuit priest example because one of the things that jesuit priests do and i love my jesuit priests but there's this expectation of why can't you do more are you doing enough mm-hmm. uh, and my mom very much personified that when i was growing up and i write about you know if it was a b plus why wasn't it an a minus it was a minus why wasn't it a you know, you made the basketball team that's not good enough you should be starting i mean there's always a sort of do more do more do more and it wasn't until I traveled and I realized that as a young woman, she graduated from college. Mm-hmm. The jobs available to her were to be a nurse or a teacher. She wanted to do something else. She wanted to do something more adventurous. And the only thing she really could do was join the Peace Corps at the time to get out from underneath her father or the patriarchy, whatever you want to call it. So she joined the Peace Corps as a young woman in the 60s and ended up building schools right outside of Medellin, Colombia. Very rural, macho places. And you know, took no BS and I didn't realize the magnitude of that until I traveled with her one-on-one I was in my early 30s the first time we ever did a overnight trip somewhere else together I had gone to spring training games with my father political conventions with my dad growing up tons of those trips first time with my mom in my 30s and I see her in these foreign countries fearless determined uh, very much ingratiating herself in the culture, having the ability to talk to anybody. And I realize, oh, gosh, this is where that comes from. And I go, this is really who she is, which is that you can't settle. you got to be moving. you got to be you know, working towards something. And you got to be curious and inquisitive. 
uh, and it's a relentless motor and it's a relentless tank. But once I understood it, I got to understand her better and our relationship got Was much stronger. Was that one of the first times, if possibly the first time, you began to see yourself in her? Yes. And what ended up happening there was I had so closely identified with my father. But as I traveled and I saw the value in it, you know, my dad was not, um, he was not a real traveler. He was very risk adverse, very American in that sense. Uh, grew up as a, in a very parochial Irish Catholic neighborhood in South Buffalo and really saw a value uh, is this, you know, in the civil service lifestyle, which my grandfather worked 40 years, two but jobs kind of a as a garbage. Yeah, but as a garbage man and a truck driver. But it was security was valued above all else. Is that you have a stable job, that stable job allows you a home, a beautiful family. Don't mess around outside of that comfort zone because once you do, you're going to bring in bad things. And my dad very much believed that. You know, he signed a 12-year contract when he was in NBC. A 12-year contract, which is unheard of. Which people say, why would you do that? You're limiting your ability to negotiate. I'm comfortable. I like where I am. I don't want to mess with it. Mm-hmm. And it, when I traveled with my mom and I saw that, wait, there is real value in being comfortable in uncertainty and taking on risk and putting yourself out there in situations that you might not be able to control – uh, because you learn so much, not about just yourself, but about others, I gravitated towards that. And I saw a real comfort in that for me. Uh, was which that is the first time in your life you were genuinely improvisational, traveling? <sighs> yeah, I would say. I mean, you like to think when you go out on these reporting trips or whatever mm. that you have moments where you, you peel away from the beaten path and you have there. But for me, you're still pretty certain, tethered. Yeah, you're still pretty tethered. I think for me that, and I write this in the prologue, mm-hmm. you know, I'm driving around in rural Maine three weeks before the election in 2016, and that's the first time I really feel free in my entire life. And, and I say that because I was an only child, and while I had a wonderful upbringing in childhood and tons of opportunity, from a very young age, I was sort of taught to play up and perform, you know, look people in the eye, shake their hands, talk to them, you know, always be on cue. Mom and dad are saying something, talk to the adult, boom, boom, boom. And the time that I had alone was always time that I felt free, but it was in the context of like my own bedroom, right? So then when I had that aloneness, but out into the actual world where I wasn't due back for a live shot or I didn't have to file a story or I, you know, I was, vacation was not ending, mm-hmm. I started to explore these thoughts and feelings in my head way more than I had ever done before. And part of it I write in the book is I go back to that space of like the, the only child alone being done with the responsibilities of the day. And it felt good. <laughs> more on the responsibilities of the day, uh, aloneness, traveling, and the like with Luke Russell. When we come back, I'm Major Garrett at the Tune In, segment three, coming up in just a minute. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I assure you no hairspray or makeup is involved in the taping of this episode. Luke Russert is our special guest. You know, it's not every day that you're a reporter on Capitol Hill. Speaker of the House of Representatives calls you into his office and gives you life transforming advice. That's what happened to Luke Russell. John Boehner, the Speaker of the House, did it. Briefly tell that story. 2015, springtime, and I was about to turn 30 in a few months, and back then I thought 30 was old. I realize now it is not. As a 60-year-old, I can tell you it's not. (laughs) It is not. But the light at the end of the tunnel was seemingly getting closer. And lost my father at 58, lost a good friend at 27. So I started to sort of think, man, you know, is there something else here? And I was feeling anxiety about the position, this job that had once brought me great joy, that I love covering, now started to feel almost stifling in a way. And I did not know if this is what I wanted to dedicate my life to. I felt that perhaps there was something else out there. But I was afraid to explore it because to explore it felt to some degree like renouncing my last name, renouncing my position and, and whatnot. And John Boehner, who I covered rather aggressively, stops me and goes, I want to talk to you. And I thought he was mad about coverage. So I was like, okay. So we, we step into his office and I'm expecting to get dressed down as often happens from politicians. If they don't like something. And he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, excuse me, sir, you invited me into your office. What do you mean? What am I doing here? He goes, no, what are you doing You're here? Like, Dummy. No, right. what are you, you doing, doing here? here? And he said, now what are you doing here in Washington? He goes, you've been here now about seven, eight years. He goes, I've been here 20. I can tell you time is a flat surface. You can be here 30, 40, 50, 60 years and have no idea what happened. And there's always going to be another election. There's always going to be legislation. There's always going to be banquets. There's always going to be uh, people, new people to see, people to meet, things to do. You can fall into it and it, 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 it can get lazy in a way. And you really should go out and see the world and and challenge yourself to do something else and just sort of understand that maybe there's something else out there and you might want to tap into it uh, and make sure that if this is, in fact, what you want to do, that you won't have any regret if you dedicate your life to it. I'm going to suggest you put your earphones on. All right. Because there's someone who can talk to us about that right now. Oh, my gosh. What a surprise. Hey, boys. Mr. Speaker. Hi, boys. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing just great. Thanks for – should we ask you about the debt limit right now? I mean, how, how <laughs> no, are the no. negotiations we'll leave, we'll leave that. We'll leave that for a little bit. We'll leave that for a moment now. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, talk to Luke Russert about that conversation as you remember it and what you were trying to convey. Well, listen, uh, my wife and I had two daughters, and over the years I've adopted a lot of sons, members of Congress, staff, and uh, even a couple of journalists. And, uh, you know, I've watched uh, Luke uh, over his uh, eight years on Capitol Hill. And, you know, he's doing a good job, but uh, it was like he was just going through the motions. It was easy for him. And uh, I always thought uh, Luke was a good guy. And, and uh, one day I decided I need to have a, call, a conversation with this guy and talk to him about it's time to grow up. So I did. And it was deeply impactful and deeply meaningful. And part of the reason why it resonated with me 
is that guy, John Boehner, had a very similar upbringing to my father. Large Catholic family. Uh, he was from Cincinnati. My dad's from Buffalo. But it was in some ways a validation because here is a guy who understood, you know, what what real work was. Boehner worked as a janitor to pay his way through college. My dad worked as a cab driver, worked as a short order cook, worked in the rectory. So here is somebody who was coming at it from a place of, I'm being honest with you, there's another world out there that's worth exploring. And Mr. Speaker, when you were talking about life on Capitol Hill and time is a flat surface, is there a kind of treadmill in Washington that people can lose track of? Well, yeah, you know, some people uh, just uh, spend their whole lives there, their whole career there. Uh, I always thought it was uh, uh, a, a stop along uh, my journey of life and my career. Uh, I was never going to be one of those old guys walking around Capitol Hill who didn't quite know who he was or where he was. And, uh, and I don't want Luke to be that guy either. So let me ask you this, Mr. Speaker. Why didn't you ever tell me that? <laughs> well, <laughs> what, 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 uh, so, what, what? so Luke, uh, Luke, just because you don't know, but I've known uh, Major for over 30 years. I can right? imagine. I could have given him this advice a long time ago, but, you know, he was he got married and had kids mm-hmm. and, you know, his wife worked in D.C. at the time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, he was in a little different position than you're in. Understood. Understood. Are you? Did you find yourself, Mr. Speaker, giving that advice to others? Oh, there's a lot of people I've given this advice to. Uh, some members I've told them it was time to leave. Uh, a, few, a few of those along the way. Uh, but uh, I've given a lot of advice to members, staff, and like I said, a few journalists. I, t- I want to ask uh, one thing though on that front because sure. one of the things that I found so powerful is you gave me that advice, and then later on that year, you basically take it yourself because we remember you got the Holy Father to come address Congress, and that was the pinnacle of your career. And you announced that you were stepping away the next day. Well, I was going to leave at the end of 2014, uh, but uh, my number two guy, Eric Cantor, lost his primary in July of 2014. Yeah. And I just didn't think I could leave because I didn't think at the time uh, that uh, Kevin McCarthy was ready to be speaker <laughs> <laughs> because he was the number three guy. And so I said, all right, I'll stick around uh, uh, through 2015. And so I knew at the end of 2015 I was going to leave. Uh, I was going to announce it on my birthday, November 17th. And uh, uh, after trying to get uh, the Pope to come and address a, a joint session of Congress, and worked at it for 20 years, it finally happened on September 24th. And after he left and all of our guests left, uh, there were, uh, all these phone calls kept coming in from the House members, Senate members, Democrats, Republicans, staff. It was, I finally realized, the happiest day I had yeah. spent the 25 years I was there. And I thought, walking out the door to go have dinner with a bunch of my constituents, and I said to my Chief of Staff Mike Summers, I said, hey, Summers, I might just make this announcement tomorrow. Mm. <laughs> he said, well, why not? So I thought about it and thought about it. And uh, the next morning, about uh, I walked up to Starbucks and back, with, and back with my boys, had my coffee and thought about it. Walked up to Peach Diner and had breakfast and uh, thinking about it. And I was walking on 2nd Street right past St. Peter's Church. There's a grotto there with a statue of the Virgin Mary. And I never forget glancing over 
at the, the grotto. And I thought, yep, today's the day. Yeah. And so uh, uh, Summers called me about a minute later and said, uh, well, what do you think? I said, well, today's the day. And uh, uh, he said, well, you better get busy because uh, we got a senior staff meeting at 845, and you probably <laughs> ought to talk to them first. Probably want to let them know, yeah. And that, but oh, that, I, was, that was the happiest day of my right. career covering Congress, so I can understand why. You're ever going to top that. Yeah. It was great. So, Mr. Speaker, I know when you were Speaker, you kept a poem on your desk, a poem written by your father, Earl Boehner. Yeah. Called To Every Daddy. With your permission, Mr. Speaker, I'm going to read the last stanza. You're the little fellow's idol. You're the wisest of the wise. In his little mind about you, no suspicions ever rise. He believes in you devoutly, holds that all you say and do, he will say and do in your way when he's grown up to be like you. You are setting an example every day in all you do for the little boy who's waiting to grow up to be like you. Published December 18th, 1966. You're making me cry. I can't imagine what's going on over there. (laughs) That's a hell of a poem, Mr. Speaker. Yeah, it is. Sure is. And uh, you mentioned that you gave advice to uh, sons that you encountered on Capitol Hill. Uh, that poem had to be through your mind when you were doing just that. Well, I never thought about uh, the poem in that context before, but uh, I got advice uh, along the way, uh, even when I didn't want it, like like Luke. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know... Nobody travels uh, the pathway of life by themselves. And uh, you run into people, you meet people, and uh, you learn from them. And you learned a lot along the way. So we're going to take a quick break, Mr. Speaker, and we'll be back in just one moment. I'm Major Garrett, Luke Russert, and Speaker John Boehner. Back in a minute. Man, that sunset is gorgeous grill patio sunset hard to get better than that unless you're browsing carvana's inventory while you soak it all in oh burger time so sit back get comfortable carvana's got thousands of cars under twenty thousand dollars just waiting for you i could stay here forever carvana where car buying meets comfort meets convenience download the app or visit carvana.com today Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to The Takeout. Yes, Luke Russert is here for every single segment, but we are holding over the former Speaker of the House, John Boehner, for one last segment, segment four. Mr. Speaker, um, when you look at uh, life in Washington, when you were there, now that you see it from a distance, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm pretty happy that uh, I'm retired. <laughs> DC was getting DC was getting a little crazy uh, 
uh, when I left, but boy, it's gotten a lot crazier since. And uh, I get back to town, uh, oh, I don't probably seven, eight times a year. Uh, but uh, I try to avoid Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. What is at work in American politics that disturbs you most? Well, I think uh, the polarization of America has resulted in the polarization of the Congress. And, uh, and this polarization is fed every day by what we see on cable news, what we see on, uh, on these social media platforms. It's pushing and pulling people into one of two camps, uh, leaving fewer and fewer people in the middle. And uh, this polarization uh, has gotten to the point where, you know, it's, it's nasty. And uh, we got friends you can't even talk to uh, about it. I don't want to talk to anybody about it. Uh, people come up to me and want to talk about this issue or that issue. You know, some lady getting on an airplane over the weekend said, uh, well, are you for Mr. Trump this year or next year? I said, ah, we'll see. And then uh, uh, she went on to ask another question about uh, the Congress, and I thought, I'm a little suspicious of this person because I don't think we're gonna we're gonna agree on much of anything. I think she was a right wing nutcase. <laughs> so where uh, are so you anyway, on uh, on the idea of Mr. Trump for next year? I think it's it's time for the Republican Party to move on, and frankly, I think it's time for Donald Trump to move on. Well, do you think either of those two things are going to happen? Hope springs eternal. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this. Getting back to Luke, um, Mr. Speaker, uh, you gave that advice to more than one person. It takes a certain amount of bravery to take that advice, doesn't it? It sure does, especially coming from me. <laughs> <laughs> Any advice you'd want to impart to Luke now that he's on the other side of that journey? Well, I read, I read Luke's book, and uh, I, I haven't texted him yet, but I'm about to, to say it's time to have... Uh, it's time to have dinner again and have the next conversation. Well, we'll because because the question is, what now, brother? What now? <laughs> we have to go to Alberto's right around the corner. We could, yes. do, another, we could do another episode of this show. We could do that. Right this that. We've, we've done we the show do from that. Alberto's, yes. Yeah, but one, yeah. of the, one of the things that uh, was, was so nice about Speaker Boehner is that he has a certain genuine kindness about him that even his biggest opponents will admit is there and even any journalist will admit is there. And I think one of the things that's so important is, it's similar to my father, that civility breeds trust. And when you can operate in that space, things become easier to understand and easier to get done, and everyone's the better off for it. So if there was ever an ability to get back into that space, that's something I'd like to be a part of. And is there something, Luke, at this moment you'd like to tell Speaker Boehner about that advice that he gave you and how you've processed it? Well, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it. And it's been uh, deeply meaningful to be being able to keep our friendship going on on all these years. And... uh, you know, give me the advice about how to enjoy Merlot and cigarettes and to live and look as strong as you, and I'd like to know that. <laughs> Cabernet these days. Cabernet. Cabernet. That's it, the healthy stuff. Uh, but in all seriousness, thank you so much, because those were thoughts that had been swimming around in my own mind, and that was the catalyst that said, hey, you know what? It's not, it's, it's not the wrong decision to actually even think about these types of things. Mr. Speaker, look, well, thinking, thinking back on that, did you sense that Luke was thinking these things? Did you no, think you were no. getting there at an opportune moment? Uh, no. I had no idea. Uh, all I knew was that he was a good guy, and it was time for him to kind of take a take a break, 
figure out who he was and where he was and what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. Anyway, I'm I'm proud of him. I'm proud of him. Thank you, sir. And do you think that there is something about the grind of politics that either requires people to ignore questions like that or forces them to ignore questions like that? Well, I don't know if it's got anything to do with politics. It's just got to do with life. Mm-hmm. Meaning you could be distracted as a lawyer, a banker, or anything else? That could happen to anybody. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I had opportunities that uh, came along in life, and, uh, and on top of that, I don't think I ever had a job when I wasn't thinking about what I was going to do next. And uh, that, over the years, always uh, helped me because I always kept my eyes open for opportunities that you just never know when they're going to come along. And when you told that to Luke, you didn't think he was lost, but you think he could. You thought what? Not that he was I, lost. No, I, he wasn't lost. I just thought that he was a talented young man and he had a lot big future and could do a lot with it. And somebody had to push him off of this lazy spot that he was on. Was he? Is he right about that? That what? That a certain, if not intentional laziness, a kind of super comfortability had crept in. It's not an easy job covering the hill. No. So it's not laziness in the sense of, okay. Physicality. These, yeah, right. These The poor reporters we're working now just work Memorial Day weekend you know, mm-hmm. covering this debt limit struggle and have not had a day off in you know, a month. So that so That's what August is for. Yeah, right. It used to be before damn <laughs> social media. But I do think that what he warned is that you can really easily fall into this trap of a cycle where there's the consistent banquet circuit. Um, there's constant changeover and things become a sort of, you get the new flashy object and you chase that and then you just sort of settle into this unchallenged way of life or this way of life where you don't question anything and you sort of assume this is the way it's always going to be. I've been fascinated because I think in the last few years, you've seen some politicians come into Washington with almost this anthropological look at the place. And that's what he was doing with me in a bit. Sort of, okay, go up at 35,000 feet and actually think about this on the day-to-day and what it's like, which is incredibly meaningful coming from someone who's second in line of the presidency and at the top tier. Mm-hmm. Were you an anthropologist in that moment, Speaker Boehner? <laughs> no, I was going to ask what the hell that word meant. <laughs> Jeez. Yes, House anthropologist and speaker John Boehner. <laughs> No, really, fill in the blank, Mr. Speaker. Go ahead. Well, no, no. No, listen, uh, I told you, I thought Luke was a talented young man. He was doing a good job, but he could do it in his sleep. Not that he was sleeping a whole lot, (laughs) uh, but uh, it was just time for him to to look for the next big challenge in life, something bigger than what he was doing, because he's got more talent uh, that was sitting on the sidelines than he was actually using and uh, when this dinner convenes here in D.C. to uh, have the conversation about the next act, uh, I'll be your waiter or busboy oh, yeah, or whatever. There. Yeah, be okay. there. We'll be there. We'll, we'll carry this on. Uh, Mr. Speaker. You are more than welcome to join us. All right. <laughs> you don't have to be on the outside. And what's, the, what's the Boehner special at Alberto's? Oh, uh, Wiener Schnitzel. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not on the menu. It's... Uh, of course, it's not on the menu. Yes. Veal, veal a la Boehner, which is on the menu. Actually, it's Wiener Schnitzel a la Holstein, uh, but the Italians do it better than the Germans. Of course. So, 
veal melonese, a couple of eggs over easy, eight or ten anchovy fillets. It's great for you. Yeah, and you'll have it all it's by yourself, good. Mr. Speaker. I guarantee you that. That's about going to do me in. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir, for uh, joining us for this conversation with Luke Russert. We will see you around uh, town and around the country. Major, Major, nice to be with you. And, Luke, stay at it. We'll be in you touch. More de- Thank you, more sir. More decisions to make. Indeed. Indeed. Stay tuned for your takeout outtake especial when we come back. See you. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to your takeout outtake especial. I'm Major Garrett. We're at the TuneIn. Luke Russert is our guest. Look for me there is his book. Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. This comes up with some frequency in the book, so I want to ask you about it. What's your relationship to alcohol? My relationship to alcohol? That's a really good question. Um, I grew up uh, in a German, Irish, Italian family. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, my mom would have wine at dinner. My father would drink beers. Um, but we've always observed a very sort of strict etiquette in the sense of if there's something important the next day, mm-hmm. uh, you must honor your commitments as I have a Guinness here on your show, right? Right. Um, but I do think that one of the things I learned, especially traveling, is I had set these limits for myself for quite a long time, which was, you know, I never drink, I wouldn't drink on Sundays ahead of the week. I would just, you know, wouldn't drink and maybe have a happy hour on Thursday and, you know, occasionally things would change on the hill. And you enjoy yourself on the weekend, but always sort of try and keep it in the fairway. And when you travel, you go, oh, I'm going to be like the, the Italians, and I'm going to have my wine at lunch. Or I'm going to be like um, you know, certain countries in Latin America where men just sort of drink beer habitually like all day. Mm-hmm. And you learn a lot about uh, yourself and how you react to it. But your tolerances. Your tolerances and, and keeping what's your good, wits about and you. Keeping your wits about you. Um, but ultimately, I, what I came to realize is that moderation is key that you can easily fall into a dark place if you use alcohol as a crutch. Um, and I think some, one of the things that especially is hard for men is that a lot of times men process emotion through alcohol, I've noticed at least. Um, and one of the things as it pertains to grief is that alcohol can be a very good friend when you're in some dark places with grief, no but doubt. it can no be doubt. a huge adversary. Mm-hmm. I was thankful that one of the advantages of having such a demanding job as a young man was <clears throat> I avoided those pitfalls, not necessarily because I didn't want them, but because any hangover on a Monday morning uh, was significantly worse than any of the enjoyment I would have had 
um, because when you're on television... And it carries consequences. It carries consequences from the viewers and from your bosses, but also when you're on television and you're not feeling well, whether it's you're hungover, thankfully I was ever hungover, but even if you have like an allergy or a cold uh, or sore throat, you really do look miserable. Except on everything. I remember there was one time when I was on, on, uh, on air and I was very sick and... It was just a sort of head cold, and I remembered, oh gosh, like I just look gray, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it, you don't want that. And right. some people they forcibly do that to themselves. It's hard. In the book, you go to lots of beautiful places where are, where there are big spaces around you, and you talk with some frequency in the book about feelings of aloneness. Did you ever, in those big spaces, maybe at night or maybe first thing in the morning, let out one hellacious scream? <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't in those spaces. It was more driving in a car, things mm. like that. Um, because? I think that sometimes your emotions are bottled up and you may have difficulty processing them. And a natural thing to do is to just let out and hit the dashboard. And I'm not an angry person at all. I'm rather much a, a pacifist, especially these days. <laughs> My friends from high school would say I've gotten quite soft, you know, almost in a yoga space, if you will. But I do think there are a lot of moments where when things are confusing, and especially where I was in, in a lot of 2018, just sort of not knowing what was ahead and not and sort of feeling my way, you do become overpowered by anger you can be overpowered by um fear you can be overpowered by anguish and sometimes a reaction to that is to scream and just sort of let out ah! and so i did that and it's beneficial and it's funny i had a school nurse when i remember this distinctly i'd be like eight or nine and she would encourage us to scream into a pillow if we were little kids sort of have a temper tantrum, go have a temper tantrum into your pillow. Mm-hmm. And I never understood the merits of that until I was in my 30s, <laughs> but it works. <laughs> so complete this sentence for me. Yeah. Because I travel the world, I am a much more fulfilled and happy person, which is first and foremost, I think, just the, the gift of travel more so than anything else. Uh, but I'm significantly more comfortable in the uncertainty that is life. And one of the things that the Buddhists preach is that life is suffering and you have to live inside that suffering. And once you're at peace with that, you understand that uh, you're capable of many things and you'll ultimately be at peace yourself. I took learning that in Cambodia and crossed it over to something I learned from the Jesuits, which is the examine, which is a sort of daily, daily meditative exercise to what did you learn today? Where were you your best self? Where were you your worst self? And how do you carry that through to the next day? And I think for me, that all comes from travel. Like, I'm in a much more comfortable place than I was six, seven years ago. And I have the journey to thank for that. Are you more or less Catholic? Ooh, probably more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I say that because one of the interesting things about traveling and the exposure to different faiths is you really realize that we're all going to the same place. We just take different roads to get there. Uh, the Catholic Church, for all its problems, it always offered a path for me in my journeys and my times. I never left prayer or a service feeling worse than I did going in. I always sort of felt better. I don't think it's, uh, you know, there's, I, I, one of the beautiful things about traveling is you become amenable to everything. I, I had firsthand experience going to mosques, going to synagogues, going to temples, and really 
try to learn about all these different religions and different things. Uh, so I don't think there's any premium. No one has it completely right. It just is the one I was born into and I've understood and that I'm comfortable with. We have three questions we pose to every guest here. Take them in whichever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life and why? Favorite movie and all kind of music that you enjoy most, genre or artist? Oh, wow. All right. So the easy answer for the most influential book in my life would be Big Russ and Me, written by my father. Um, That's just because getting to hear his story to this day through audible recordings has been greatly beneficial to me. His voice is still alive, so I'm so thankful for that. If we go... Outside of that, and we, we apply it into all books. Um, the book that sort of served for me early on in life is a book by uh, the late, great Tony Horowitz. It was called Confederates in the Attic. Mm-hmm. And in that book, Horowitz basically tries to travel around and understand the American South and understand uh, the divisions between different regions of the country and seeks to understand why are things the way they are. And I read that book as a young man in my teens, and it had a profound effect on me because it taught me the value of real-world experience and immersing yourself in immersion, the value of immersion. And as a history major, I love primary source documents, and that's part of the reason why I like Capitol Hill so much is that every day is a primary source document. So Confederates in the Attic by uh, Tony Horowitz. Movie? Movie. Uh, well, my father's favorite movie was Cool Hand Luke, and that's one of the Lukes that I'm named after. Uh, but that's not my favorite movie. I would say my favorite movie. The one that was the most impactful on me growing up, I'm going to have to answer two. One was the movie Rudy, which I loved because uh, of the scrappy underdog nature of it. And it was in a... A, 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 a movie that tugged on the heartstrings that I watched it with my father. And so I really enjoyed that. The other one that I come back to uh, consistently that I really don't uh, turn away when I watch it is a very dark one. And that's American History X, mm-hmm. uh, that Norton. And I go back to that film and when it was made. And people thought it was a very radical film when it came out. And sadly... It's proven prescient. very prescient. And I encourage people to watch it. It's very dark. It's very hard. Very dark. But it's something that I watched it for the first time. I had a, a teacher that got permission that we could, I think we saw when I was 15, 14 or 15 years old. Yeah. And I've never forgotten it. And it certainly made a huge impact on my life and how I sort of Deeply see heavy, things. prescient, mm-hmm. and dark as all get yeah. out. Uh, your kind of music that you enjoy most? I inherited a love of Springsteen from my father. Uh, but and, I, and he is still my favorite. I like all types of music. Uh, like I've been on this recent Tina Turner kick since she passed. Got a lot of her. My mom did two articles about her, which was fascinating. But uh, I really like Jason Isbell recently. He's a country singer. I think he's the best songwriter of his generation. We're kind of close in age, and I've uh, I've gotten deep into the catalog with him. And when I was writing the book, he has a song called "Hope the High Road." Um, and I used to listen to it every single morning when 
I would make my eggs and coffee in San Francisco before I would write. So five days a week, I would listen to that song. It was sort of my, my, my walk-up song. <laughs> and the walk-up song for the book he was writing is the book entitled Look For Me There, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. Luke Russert has been our guest here at the TuneIn. Luke, thanks. Thank you. We'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.